This CNBC podcast is brought to you by TD Ameritrade. There's no ROI on TMI. That's why TD Ameritrade created a learning experience that will actually learn with you. Curated from their vast library of exclusive content, it customizes to fit your investing goals, interests, and needs, so you get exactly the information you need and none of the information you don't. Get started at tdameritrade.com education. Once again, that's tdameritrade.com education. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to America. Other people want to make friends. I'm just trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. All day, all day we heard this market just has to go lower, ineluctable, because the yield on the 10-year Treasury is flirting with 3%. Sure enough, we got hit today at one point, but then we rebounded near the close, Dow dipping 14 points, S&P inching up just barely in the green, NASDAQ declined 0.25%. But honestly, I'm not sure interest rates are what we need to be super worried about here. I think the bigger short-term worry is a possible slowdown caused by new barriers to trade that we're erecting with China now and perhaps many other countries later. New barriers to trade are being imposed right when they can do the most damage to our economy by boosting inflation, which in turn will force the Federal Reserve to tighten faster than it might otherwise need to. And excessive rate hikes from the Fed are exactly the kind of self-inflicted wound that we don't want. Look, don't get me wrong. Uh, I think President Trump is right to crack down on China's rapacious trade practices. But the timing is terrible because tariffs do add fuel to the fire that is inflation that we're seeing bubble up on all the conference calls that I listen to every day. This is much bigger deal, much bigger deal than the 10-year Treasury March to 3%. Although if you listen to most commentators, the 10-year is the true culprit behind the weakness in the market. The narrative, as long as rates stay below 3%, we're fine. If they go above 3%, we're toast. According to the experts, when that happens, the market must go lower. You know what? I think this analysis is wrong. Uh, I also think it's stupid. The fact is, as Lloyd Blankfein told CNBC's own Wilford Frost in a great interview last week, the 10-year rates have been heavily influenced by central banks, which means they tell us much less about growth or inflation than they used to before the Great Recession. Once the Fed and other central banks got into the business of buying and selling long-term treasuries, quantitative easing and quantitative tightening, the 10-year became a lot less useful, according to Goldman's blank fine, than as a gauge of economic activity than it used to be. I think Lloyd's right. That doesn't mean we'll be just fine when the 10-year crosses the 3% Rubicon. I think we will sell off. What it does mean is that this sell-off will likely be a buying opportunity. Because while so many experts tell this story about the dangers of the 10-year going over 3, I think this is, could be, let's just say, uh, invoking Shakespeare, a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. I got another interpretation. Let's fall back on the narrative told us by Brian Jordan. He's the CEO of First Horizon, the Tennessee-based regional bank. On Friday, if you remember, Jordan explained that business is excellent. There's a terrific loan demand at this level. There'll be Dallas be good demand even when long-term interest rates go higher. Things are great. Economies do tend to build ahead of steam. Sure, higher interest rates can derail any economy. But rates are still extraordinarily low by historical standards, and 3% isn't enough to derail squat. We even joke that perhaps we're just too old to be too worried here. 
because in our lifetimes, we've seen great loan demand when the yield in the 10-year was twice what it is right now. Twice. Twice. I'm not dismissing the concerns of younger money managers who've never seen stronger activity, strong activity at higher rates than these. But we know that the algorithms may simply turn out to be wrong. In short, when the 10-year crosses 3% and we sell off, you'll want to use that weakness to do some buying. But here's the problem. While I'm not particularly worried about interest rates here, there's something else that makes me a lot less sanguine about the stock market. Remember, President Trump has said he's going to impose tariffs on $100 billion with the Chinese exports. And while we still don't know which, which products those tariffs will hit, I don't see a way for Trump to impose them without causing some real pain. In every case, whether he goes after furniture or footwear or computers or toys or cell phones, the American consumer will get hurt. Most people in this country depend on cheap merchandise made in China. Slap tariffs on that stuff and companies will pass those costs on to their customers. It's hard to calculate what the impact will be without knowing what these duties will apply to. But any way you slice it, the cost of living here in America is going to get more expensive. It's bad for the economy, especially short term, and it's bad for stocks. Higher tariffs will chew into your disposable income. They will cause inflation. They will depress economic activity both here and around the world. In fact, the president's team pretty much says says that we'll have to take some short-term pain economically, and that includes the recent declines in the stock market. Let's compare these issues side by side. It's entirely possible this economy is so strong, it can keep chugging along with the yield and the 10-year goes north of three. But we know economic activity will slow down if the trade war keeps escalating. So that'll leave the American consumer with less disposable income they can spend. And a lot of the companies I follow need disposable income. Okay, They need, they need the spending that comes from people feeling wealthier. Worse, the trade war with China is on three fronts. Finished goods, raw materials, and intellectual property. After years of our leaders ignoring the rapacious ways of the Chinese, President Trump's determined to fight back on all three fronts. Tariffs on finished goods will lift prices, causing inflation for certain, though. Tariffs on raw materials could crimp the profits of every company that makes products out of steel and aluminum. And intellectual property, take a look at the carnage since the administration banned the selling of our technology to ZTE, the big Chinese smartphone maker. And China hit us back by holding up Qualcomm's acquisition of NXP Semi with some bogus antitrust concerns. All times like this, you know what I like to do? I like to fall back on history. There have been some fantastic eras when the stock market just soared as rates go higher, as as it went higher. Now, initially, okay, now ultimately if we go to seven, eight, no, but the market roared. But there have not been many times when the stock markets perform well during a trade war. So if we know this, why not just drastically cut back your exposure to stocks? Simple, because love them or hate them, Trump's incredibly flexible when it comes to policy. What if he senses the tariffs are hurting citizens too much for them to vote for him in 2020 or his party later this year? What if the Chinese actually bend their behavior and offer real concessions? Everything that's been done so far can be undone if the Communist Party is simply willing to stop some of its most egregious trade practices. Most important, what if Trump's tariffs on $100 billion imports are really an opening bid in negotiations with China? The art of the deal, nothing more. That's right. Things are so fluid that selling a huge amount of stock when our tariffs haven't yet been put into place, May 1st is the day, could cause you to miss a substantial comeback rally. Of course, I think we could see some selling into this May 1st deadline. Of course, there's already been some some tariffs, but I'm talking about the big one. And uh, well, if there uh, if nothing gets done, well, let's just say, you know what, the best thing you can do. Raise some cash into the modicum of strength that we're going to get periodically, as we did this opening, as we did near the end of today. we got to do that. Have to. 
because ultimately we could go down big on these tariffs. It's what I've been telling people who belong to the ActionAlertsPlus.com club pretty much every day. Raise some cash. We've been raising cash. But then, leave something on the table so you're ready when the market comes to its senses about the tenure. And, of course, you need to stay the course just in case we get a truce in the trade war with China that Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin seemed this weekend to want. I think it's worth taking some pain here for the chance to participate in that rally as most people aren't nimble enough to swap out and swap back in at a lower level. Here's the bottom line. Now, I, I don't want you fretting every single second about interest rates as I hear all day and read constantly. The real worry here, don't confuse things. It's the global trade war because that will absolutely hurt your portfolio. As a citizen, I think it's good policy. But as your investing coach, it's of paramount concern. Lonnie in New York. Lonnie. Booyah, Jim. Emphatic stuttering booyah. I like that. What's happening? My man, pots and pans. Jim, I called you half years ago regarding a speculative biotech stock. I bought it at $3.55 back in October 2015. I sold 1,000 shares at, in October of last year at $32.50. It took off. They have the frontline therapy drug um, in renal carcinoma called Cabometic. Mm-hmm. Well put. The name of the company is Exelexis. Right. E-X-E-L. My question is, they have nothing but positive news, Jim. Earnings came out in quarter four, 2017. They met, they, they met earnings. They surpassed on revenue, but the stock went way down for no reason. Maybe something with the tariffs or North Korea. I don't know. I bought more. I bought another 3,000 shares at 26. It's now almost 21. Earnings is coming well, up May 2nd. They should blow it out of the park. Well, I first, Lottie, think I think it. that you know the stock better than most. You know it better than I do. But I do know the, I do know the cohort. And the cohorts become very, very hard. Almost every night I see a stock blow up in that group. So just be aware, the speculation in that particular end of the stock market is speculating. Sell, sell, sell. Down. Amir in California. Amir. Booyah! Hi, Jim. Um, Novartis bought Avexis for $8.7 billion and made a tender offer to buy all outstanding shares for $218 per share, right. contingent upon 51% of the shareholders tendering their shares, yet the stock is trading around $210, and this isn't an odd-lot offer. So I'm wondering why everyone wouldn't buy the stock and assure themselves a 3.8% return. We, because it's too risky. The upside is 3 and 8. It's capped. The downside can be unlimited, as we know from what happened to NXP when I told people to sell that one. So those are different industries, but same possible concept. Walter in Florida. Walter. Hi, Jim. Hey, Walter. Walter what's going on? Walter from Beach here, and I'm looking for your input and thoughts on a stock I've owned for about a year. And one that I would like to buy for India and Hudson, my grandchildren, to add to their portfolios, even though they own Disney as one of 15 stocks with small holdings. All right. Jim, the stock is Discovery Communications, DISCA, which has wonderful program holdings for all ages, is international in scope and languages, including, I believe, the top sports programming in Europe. Right. With all the emerges and acquisitions going on in the hunt for media media content in both regular programming as well as sports content, 
to me, I think that Discovery Communications is a great takeover candidate. Well, Walter, no. I don't think it's a great takeover candidate. I think it's a good earning situation. And I would tell you that John Malone said the same thing to David Faber, and John Malone is the dean. So my take is I like Discovery on earnings basis. I don't necessarily like it on a takeover basis. All right, listen. Raise some cash into periodic strength that we had, like, today twice, okay? And when the market comes to its senses about the tenure, then I think you want to do some buy. But remember what the real issue is. It's tariffs. Well, man, money tonight. Is it trouble in Toyland for Hasbro? With the collapse of Toys R Us, I'm going to sit down with the CEO after earnings to see what it means for the toy maker. And new brands just avoided a potential proxy fight that I did not want to occur. I'll tell you why that actually could be a game changer. And light them if you got them. I'm looking at e-cigarettes to see how they're disrupting the traditional tobacco stocks. Have you seen how badly they're acting? So stick with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. What in the world's going on with the stock of Hasbro? I mean, this morning, the toy maker reported what was widely regarded as a terrible quarter. The stock got slammed. You know, it was in pre-market trading down $7. But then something funny happened. Management put things in perspective on the conference call and the stock rebound, only closing up $3.31 or 4%. Yeah, 10 bucks swing. Makes sense to me. Hasbro's stock has already been severely punished since last summer in anticipation of the liquidation of Toys R Us. With one of their largest distributors biting the dust, this was going to be a real ugly quarter. And that should have been a surprise, especially because the company was quite candid in telling us this is going to happen. So sure, the company reported a 23-cent earnings miss off a 33-cent basis, earnings down 79% year-over-year. Yeah, its sales came in about 100 mil less than expected declining by 15% versus last year. But once the Toys R Us liquidation is behind them, management has some big plans to get the business moving in. Question is, can they deliver? Let's take a closer look with Brian Goldner, the chairman CEO of Hasbro, get a better sense of the company's quarter and the company's prospects. Mr. Goldner, welcome back to Mad Money. Hi, Jim. Brian, were you surprised at the 10-point swing from down seven to up three today? You know, we were really just focused on communicating to our audience what's really going on and that we had to get through the Toys R Us liquidation. Uh, it will continue through the second quarter in the United States and then we'll move on cleanly in the third and fourth quarter. We're going to build big programs. Our retailers are incredibly interested in growing with us and our business. We have great POS in our brands and our retail inventories are down. So we just needed to communicate that and continue to profitably grow our business. Now, sometimes these liquidations last longer than expected. I know we saw it with Sports Authority. I know we had uh, an outfit, small outfit called Ollie's Bargain. But let's just use them as an example. Talking about the huge amount of toys that were in the channel related to Toys R Us. How do we know that you can clear it up in one, uh, in one quarter coming? Well, we only shipped a little bit of product in this first quarter. So the rest of the product was from remainder of fourth quarter last year. We held back some inventories across the entire retail channels in order to ensure our new initiatives weren't caught up in the liquidation. And then we'll begin to ship those as we move forward with great entertainment initiatives. We have the Avengers movie. We have our Black Panther home entertainment window. We have the new solo movie coming in May. 
So it's very exciting in the second quarter, moving into third and fourth quarter with new innovation and and initiatives for a number of our brands and our gaming initiatives. Your company has always been terrific at returning capital. You had a very big dividend. I was surprised you bought back so little stock. But if the stock stays down here in this next quarter, is that an opportunity to put money to work buying stock, given how little you purchased in the first? Well, the capital structure of the company is always first and foremost to invest in our business. We continue to do that. We're rapidly accelerating our transformation of our commercial organization. Uh, we did buy back uh, about $40 million worth of stock. We're on track to buy back about $150 million, and our board just approved another dividend increase, which will take place in May, and that's our 14th increase over the last 15 years. Okay, so let's talk about uh, Black Panther, biggest movie ever. I would have thought that you would have had a little more product out when it first came out. Can you catch up with the home entertainment? Well, we built the most robust line we'd ever built for a Marvel origin film. So lots of SKUs and lots of great product. But the popularity is amazing. And we're so excited. We hope to catch up by the home entertainment window, which comes this May. And then for the third and fourth quarter, we have a lot of new initiatives. There's a lot of new product that will come to the market, including Black Panther role play and uh, new action figures. So, again, it's a business that adds to the strength of Marvel. Marvel's having a great year with us. Avengers should add to that. And we're supporting six Marvel initiatives this year, six great films, and then we'll go into 2019 with additional Marvel strength. Should we be worried at all about some sort of ennui fatigue with the Star Wars line? You know, I really see that Star Wars has just moved to a new level. It'll be that new high level that goes forward. But we do have entertainment every year, and that gives us that certainty, that visibility to the brand that I think is fantastic. And we're continuing to put new innovations in the market and the solo movie should be fantastic this May. Can we uh, gauge what uh, is away from Toys R Us? In other words, what, how did you do at other places, other channels, and are you uh, excited about them, including the direct-to-consumer channel? Well, we are very excited. In fact, over the last three years, our U.S. team has added more than 21,000 doors at retail net of the losses of Toys R Us. So we continue to build a more robust retail footprint. We continue to develop new products and innovations for every price point. So this is giving us the opportunity to get great toys and games in the hands of our kids who deserve to enjoy their favorite characters and their favorite play patterns. And then, of course, to enjoy the entertainment initiatives that are coming. As we go forward, what we're doing is accelerating our efforts in Europe where we need to modernize our retail organization, add some new capabilities, data analytics, digital assets and more content to commerce. This is all about that omni-channel sales experience. We want the consumer to be able to move from any format to any format and successfully navigate their shopping and buying pattern. All right. Well, I want to thank you for being so clear the whole time. You said it was going to be tough. You said it was going to be tough to, uh, because of Toys R Us. What, how are you able to handle what I regard as being, honestly, seven months of distraction about will they, won't they, will they, won't they? Because this was one of the oddest bankruptcies I've ever seen. Well, it, it did come on relatively suddenly as a liquidation. We thought that they were going to reduce the number of stores. That's what they'd indicated early in the year. And recognize that while the bulk of the Toys R Us distraction will be behind us after the second quarter, because the U.S. business represents two-thirds of the global Toys R Us business for us, we still have some regions around the world where we don't have perfect clarity. We're waiting to hear about the Asian business. There's an offer there for the Asian business. We hear that parts of Europe may be sold to a European specialty retailer. That's fantastic. And the Canadian business also has an offer. So once that gets resolved, we can move forward. And I'm certain 
that a year from now we will not be talking about Toys R Us in this negative light. Well, I hope people understand that that really is the perspective that we encourage on Man Money. I want to thank Brian Golder, Chairman CEO of Hasbro. Great to see you, sir. Great. Great to see you. Right. Look, I think the worst is over. Does that necessarily mean that you should just go in hand over fist? I think if it came back to where it was, I would. But you know what? Buying some Hasbro ahead of what could be a great second half may be the way you should focus on the stock. Stick with Kramer. Man, what a difference a week makes. Last Monday, I came here, I told you, you got to stay away from new brands. I call it a Frankenstein's monster of a company formed by the ill-thought-out merger of the old Newell Rubbermaid and Jordan, creating a house of rudderless, unrelated consumer brands that don't necessarily belong under the same roof. For most of the past year, Newell's management has overpromised and underdelivered, causing the stock to lose more than half of its value versus its highs last year. That combination caused the stock to be cut in half, and yet there were no executive changes, very little accountability. More important, at least down at the 26th level, Newell had become the ultimate battleground. The company was in the midst of a vicious three-way proxy fight, like the Mexican standoff at the end of the good, the bad, and the ugly. Yet the activist investors did starboard value, playing the role of Blondie, Carl Icahn as Angel Eyes, and Newell's management as Tuco. Starboard had wanted to boom the whole management team and start over with a fresh board of directors. Then Icon made a deal with Newell that I didn't really understand, didn't seem right to me, to back their current executives in exchange for six board seats. And it only got more complicated from there. Even though both Carl Icon and the guys at Starboard, uh, and they're very smart, uh, I told you that these, this seemed like a no-win situation to me because these guys were hating each other. Whoever won the proxy fight would inherit a really, really suboptimal situation. Split board. Everyday management spends on this boardroom drama is another day they're not focused like a laser on turning around the business. And believe me, a guy like CEO Mike Polk, he can't afford any distractions. He wasn't really doing that much of a bang-up job before the proxy fight, but he had a plan to turn the company around, and now I think it could work with help from the board. A week ago, that was a very big issue. I didn't see it happening, but a lot can happen in seven days. What's that? I now believe there's something here worth owning? Yes, because the facts have changed. And like the late, great John Maynard Keynes, when the facts change, I change my mind. This morning, Newell Brands announced an agreement with Starboard. I loved it. They're putting two new independent directors on the board, taking the place of the most controversial Carl Icahn-aligned directors, and also nominating one of Starboard's candidates. Now, the stock market didn't seem to care about this development. It yawned. I don't know why. I thought it was a game changer. I thought it should be up a couple of bucks. Now that Starboard value has been brought into the fold with some superb new directors who've been, uh, been brought in in a friendly, consensual way, without the rancor and the drama. I'm actually more confident in Newell's ability to turn itself around, and the stock might actually be worth buying. Why the sudden shift? Let me explain. Last week, I told you that I'm a big believer in Starboard. If anyone could help mastermind a turnaround at Newell Brands, it's these guys. The problem, though, is that some of the board uh, nominees dropped out. So even if Starboard had won the proxy fight, and it looked like that could happen, they'd still only control four seats out of 11. That would have been a Pyrrhic victory. Given the contentious nature of any proxy contest, it was hard to imagine the other seven directors giving anybody from Starboard a fair hearing. They'd be frozen out, making a lot of distracting noise. However, now that the proxy fight has been resolved amicably, which means Starboard is going to be empowered to suggest all kinds of changes, I like it. And when Starboard is in a position to do such a thing, their track record is pretty darn good. They had tremendous success with Darden, with Insperity, Marvel Technology, and Integrated Device Technology, just to name a few off the top of my head that I've liked. 
We own shares in Darden, parent company of Olive Garden, because of Starboard's changes. And we've been recommending to you Marvell, Insperity, and IDTI for the exact same reason. We like Starboard. Beyond that, three new board members solve a number of problems for Newell. For starters, remember that deal management made with Carl Icahn to fend off Starboard that we didn't like? Well, I don't know how much thought Icahn really put into the picks for the board. One seat went to his son, one went to the general counsel of the company, one went to one of the traders, and the final one went to his son's friend from college. I mean, seriously, I thought that the Icahn deal entrenched management. That's what I was so worried about, actually angry about. It made it so Polk's job was safe, even if he continued to disappoint shareholders. What kind of thing is that? The new, star, the new deal with Starboard boots Icon's GC and his son's friend from the board. The three Starboard picks come in, coming in, they are all good additions. For example, Bridget Ryan Berman spent four years running Victoria's Secret Direct. No one wants to expand its direct-to-consumer business. Uh, Geraldo Lopez used to lead Starbucks consumer product biz. Makes sense. Hey, Newell wants to put up its Mr. Coffee division along, among other brands. Third, these nominees solved some previously unresolved corporate governance issues that really bugged me. Basically, the old board of directors had an executive committee that acted like a board within a board. And this executive committee was pretty secretive. They were working on a huge asset sale plan that they hadn't even told the rest of the board about. So when three former Jordan executives left the board in January, they had no idea this plan was in the works. That's terrible corporate governance. When Newell made its first deal with Icon, the executive committee went away. Now the finance committee is in charge of the asset sales, but finance was controlled by two Icon directors. Now one of those Icon directors is being replaced by a starboard guy. That makes a difference. Perhaps most important, now that Newell Brands is no longer embroiled in a bitter high-profile proxy fight, they can actually focus on turning things around. Don't get me wrong, this company still has some serious structural problems. Patching things up with Starboard doesn't make them go away. Newell still has a ragged mix of undermanaged brands. They still need to unload many of them to raise $10 billion as part of their asset sale plan, but the balance sheet is still pretty good. They still need to do everything they can to improve efficiency, though. But now that the proxy fight is over, mind you, the stock didn't pop, which I thought was wrong. They can actually focus on doing those things that, with some assistance of some very smart people. A week ago, this story was about Starboard clashing with Carl Icahn. Now it's about Starboard teaming up with Icahn to help solve Newell's problems. That's like the Wall Street version of the Avengers or the Justice League. Finally, last week, you remember, I was very, very critical of CEO Mike Polk. When Newell made its first deal with Icahn, that deal basically made Polk bulletproof. That didn't seem fair to me. Now, though, with Starboard's directors coming in, there's accountability. If Polk can't deliver, well, then he knows he's finished. That's exactly what Newell needs. I'm not saying Polk should be fired, but I do think he needs to feel like his job's aligned, which he couldn't with the Icon Group. If he can improve Newell's operating performance and make some smart asset sales, more power to him. He's been luckless so far, but that may be baked into the stock, which should have moved up smartly on this truce. If he can't turn it around, then the board, spurred by Starboard, can bring in someone new. And look, Polk seems to welcome this new level of accountability, which I like. That's a good sign. I want him to succeed and make money for, st- for shareholders. Starboard's intervention has helped turn around so many troubled companies, I bet they can do it here. Put it all together, and I think that overnight Newell Brands has become a turnaround story that actually is worth speculating on now that the open warfare is over. Bottom line, I had no interest in Newell when it was stuck in a vicious proxy fight. And I told you anyone who won this fight was likely to experience only a Pyrrhic victory. I guess they were paying attention, because now Newell's made peace with the activist investors at Starboard, and that makes this a very different story. That's why you now have my blessing to buy the stock. Yes, Starboard is that good, and I truly believe Polk will take heed of their advice, with the understanding that if he doesn't, he's most likely gone. That could be a win-win situation developing here. Polk's a seed, stock goes higher. 
If he fails, Starboard will likely have a hand in picking a very good successor. Arnold in Florida. Arnold! How are you, Jim? I am good, Arnold. How about you? I'm pretty good. Jim, your thoughts on J&J, Johnson & Johnson, both short and long term. You know, oh. recently they had some legal challenges with one of their products, but I also heard an excellent interview with Alex Gorski, their CEO, and thought long term it's probably still a blue, blue chip. What do you think? I could not agree with you more. I think that Alex Gorski is going to be the guy you want to invest with. That group is trouble. Stock yields 2.6. Buy some. Buy some J&J if you are a long-term shareholder. Short-term, I would still buy a little bit. And if the 10-year goes above three, which I've told you isn't that big a deal, then I would buy more. Yes, Gorski and J&J. They are great. All right, this is now a very different Newell story because of this change on the board. It's become a win-win. You have my blessing to buy the stock. Much more mad money and looking for a hot trend with momentum? I'll tell you how electronic cigarettes can continue to smoke the traditional tobacco place. Then from Cottonelle to Kleenex, consumer giant Kimberly Clark is probably in your home. It's in mine. But should it be in your portfolio? Hmm, interesting. I'm going to eye the company after earnings. And all your calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of The Lightning Round. So stick with Kramer. Every now and then, you can watch the stock market realize that the world has changed in real time. There are these moments where investors suddenly understand some powerful new trend, and it blows up the landscape in an industry that used to be considered safe. Overnight stocks get obliterated as sentiment turns on a dime and goes very negative very fast. For example, last week we saw the market's sudden recognition that the cigarette industry seems to be in serious trouble. Disrupted by the rise of vaping. Of course, as someone who lives in New York, this is not really a new phenomenon. You see people with their vape pens all over the place, don't you? They're on TV, they've gotten so popular that they're facing their own public health backlash. But for years, investors figured that the old line tobacco companies would be able to profit from vaping just like they profit from smoking. And even if vaping replaced smoking, the assumption was that cigarettes would get phased out ever so slowly. While being a human ashtray carries a major social stigma in America, in the rest of the world, smoking is a lot more common. Then last week came, and over the course of three short days, the tobacco stocks were bent. They were spindly, spindle, and they were mutilated by the realization that electronic cigarettes have become a serious threat to the old school cigarette makers. It all started with an incredibly prescient call from an industry analyst, a brutal downgrade of Altria on Wednesday. The very next day, the whole industry blew up in the wake of Philip Morris International's hideous earnings report and miserable conference call. PM for the, uh, is the symbol there. And believe me, this was stunning. Until last week, both Altria, the huge collection of domestic brands like Marlboro, Parliament's Cools, and Philip Morris, which owns the international rights to these same brands, were terrific performers. These stocks have been running. Then it all fell apart. Let's start with the downgrade, then we'll get into the earnings. On Wednesday, Adam Spielman at Citigroup published a chilling takedown of the tobacco industry. He pointed out that these companies used to be incredibly consistent for most of recent history. Cigarette volumes tend to fall by about 3 to 4% each year. Fewer and fewer people want to buy cancer sticks, but the decline was slow and steady. 
And because things were predictable, even though it was going down, tobacco companies could offset their shrinking volumes by raising prices. When you sell a product that's insanely addictive, you know people will pay up, especially because the big boys know that the tobacco laws protect them from competition. You can try to undercut Altria on price with some smaller brand that nobody's ever heard of, but how the heck can you get the word out when it's illegal to advertise in most forms of media? Get it? Well, that was the old normal. But as Spielman noted, wow, this guy's smart. That model is now under serious threat. Remember, this is before PM reported. Cigarette volumes are no longer falling at a slow and steady pace. Why? Because while vape pens have been around for years now, the industry has only just recently invented its killer app. And it's called Juul. That's J-U-U-L. A relatively new brand of electronic cigarettes that's taken the world by storm. It looks looks more like a piece of technology than a vape pen, like a thumb drive. And it delivers much more Nicotine than the competition. Sadly, it's also really popular with teenagers. Juul now controls nearly half of the e-cigarette market. The sales grew nearly eightfold last year. These things are in such high demand that they're often sold out at many of the smaller stores that carry them. Honestly, I just wish Juul Labs actually was publicly traded because it is a great growth store. Look, in a perfect world, no one would inhale this stuff, but we don't live in a perfect world. And even with the health risks from vaping, it, it can't be worse than smoking. Morality aside, not easily done, but work with me here. This thing is selling like crazy, and it's really eating into the tobacco industry in a way that other e-cigs never could. According to Nielsen, U.S. cigarette volume shrank by 6% in the first quarter, substantially worse than expected. And Spielman describes the difference to Juul. Now, some cigarette companies have launched knockoff versions of this thing at lower price points, like Altria and Imperial Tobacco. However, longer term, Spielman argues that the landscape has changed, and eventually he figures that lower cigarette volumes will make it much more difficult for anyone in the industry to generate earnings growth. And the problem here is that while the tobacco companies can get into the vaping business, their own vape pens tend to be money losers. Maybe they could protect their sales, but he worries about their earnings. Makes sense. Who would want to swap out of an incredibly profitable business and into one that's losing money? Presumably, the vape side can become more profitable over time as more people buy the low-margin devices, allowing them to sell more high-margin consumables. Think disposable nicotine cartridges. But as Spielman explains, at the moment, Juul is eating everyone's lunch. Let me just point out how impressive this was. Before Spielman's downgrade last Wednesday, I hadn't seen anyone making this case in the tobacco space. Pretty much everybody loved them. But the very next day, he was proven correct when Philip Morris International imploded. Remember, this is the global part of the Marlboro business, and the rest of the world was supposed to be stronger, uh, the stronger side of the tobacco business. Hey, look, you ever go overseas? Everyone still smokes. It seemed pretty impermeable, frankly. While the headline numbers looked okay, uh, they actually gave you a nice earnings beat. The underlying trends were just plain terrified. Sure, they raised their full-year guidance, but that's only because of the tax cut. The problem, Philip Moore saw its total volumes decline by 2.3%, with a 5.3% decline in its cigarette business. Now, get this. This is what really made people shudder. Marlboro, the flagship brand, was down 7% across the board. <laughs> And it gets worse when you go region by region. The European Union down 6.7%. Eastern Europe down 10.4%. Middle East and Africa down 8.5%. East Asia and Australia down 18.3%. Latin America and Canada down 1.5%. The only region where they're still growing is South and Southeast Asia up 6.1%. That's devastating. 
the global tobacco industry was supposed to be robust. Even when Spielman downgraded the group last Wednesday, he was only focused on the domestic market. The Philip Morris quarter tells us that vaping isn't just crushing tobacco in the U.S. It's crushing tobacco in nearly every part of the globe. In particular, they're getting crushed in Japan and Korea, two major cigarette markets thanks again to the popularity of e-cigs. Even Philip Morris's own internal vaping business disappointed with a meaningful deceleration in the company's IQOS platform, which plateaued years before management expected it to. Put it all together, and you can understand why the stocks went literally into free fall. Uh, PM tumbled from 101 to 85 in a single session, and the pin action devastated the rest of the group. Tobacco stocks are all well off their highs now. So what do we do with the cancer stick makers? First things first, Altry reports on Thursday, and we'll be watching them like a hawk. But big, big picture here, if you bet on the tobacco stocks, you're like King Canute trying to fight the tide. When you make a product that ultimately kills your customers, you need to bring in new users or you're toast. But millennials would rather vape than smoke now that jewels become cool. And even if all these vape sales were going to the big legacy tobacco companies and not startups, it would still wreck the profitability of the industry because the margins on e-cigs are so much lower than on real cigs. So what if you wanted to invest in vaping instead? Right now, there are no pure play publicly traded vape companies listed on the U.S. exchange. But if Juul ever starts taking, uh, talking about coming public, I'm going to let you know. Bottom line, last week, investors realized practically overnight that the tobacco industry is facing an existential threat from its vaporizer competitors led by Juul Labs. And while the group got obliterated last week, I think it could even have more downside. Couldn't happen to a nicer bunch of companies. Mad Bunny's back here to the break. It is time! Time for the lightning round! Let's wrap And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready, Ski? That is time for the lightning round! I'm going to start with John in New Jersey. John! Booyah to you, Mr. Kramer. Hey, John, how this you doing? John. I'm doing great today, Mr. Kramer. Thank yeah, you. I'm calling from Sayreville, New Jersey. Okay. Uh, first of all, thank you for taking my call, and I really appreciate all that you do for us investors. Thank you. My question you. today is on Ingersoll Rand. Oh, I like symbol. Ingersoll Rand. It's precisely kind of cyclical industrial that works well at this phase of the tightening cycle. Scott in Florida. Scott. Booyah, Mr. Kramer. Booyah. Pleasure to speak with you today, sir. Same. I've, I've accumulated a small position in VX Blackstone Group for the past couple of years. I mainly purchased it for the dividend, which is a little less than 7%. I wanted to get your opinion of that. You know, I've company. been a backer of that one for, I, I, honestly, for 10 years, I think. I think that Schwartzman's real good. Let's go to Nancy. I don't know the jet myself, though. Let's go to Nancy in Florida. Nancy. Hi, Dr. Kramer. Good afternoon. Nice to be doctor. What's going on? <laughs> My stock is TMO, Thermo Fisher Scientific. Oh, what a great stock. You know, we made really good money out of it for the ActionLearnsPlus.com club, and we ended up uh, leaving 50 points on the table. This thing is a horse. Bob in Pennsylvania. Bob. Booyah, Jim from Shemokin, PA, in the heart of the coal region. My question is about New Tech, N-E-W-T. Um, I think that New Tech is a business development company that I don't really understand, uh, meaning that it's opaque, and I'm not going to recommend an opaque stock. Bill in New York, Bill. Booyah to you, Professor Kramer. Yes, man, you what's going on? of the finance department. Thank you for all that you do for us, home gamers. 
I've made some very good money from I your success. I love to hear that. Thank you. These are long days. I'm what can I do it. to help? Okay, I am uh, totally uh, committed to this lithium and its batteries, and I've been nibbling away at Albemarle, ALB. Well, I actually would prefer FMC, because FMC is that terrific piece of business that it got when the Dow DuPont deal needed to close, which is ag, and so that's my favorite. I need to go to Christian in New Jersey. Christian! Hey, Jim, how's it going? Um, I was wondering what your thoughts on Nike were. You know what? Nike has had such huge uh, executive turnover, and the stock doesn't come down. What happens when the turnover stops? Ah. Yeah, that's right. Peter in New York. Peter! Yes, Mr. Dr. Kramer. Booyah to you. Booyah! My stock is Zebra uh, Technology. I picked oh, it up. Oh, man, to- that is one that we've been on for. Where is that puppy? I mean, geez, we've been behind that. So all those people at the Super Bowl, uh, I saw Anders. That stock is up 30 points since we recommended it last. Can we go to Chris in California? Chris. Hey, Jim. This is Chris calling from the City of Roses. Uh, I was wondering what your sentiment is on Amy Therapeutics. It's a biopharma that specializes in food allergies. Yeah, and you know, I've looked at this company, and we did like it. We do think that that's an important niche business. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. I am reeling, just reeling from the results we got this morning from Kimberly-Clark and from Procter & Gamble's results last week. Like Procter on the surface, Kimberly-Clark looks pretty darn good, with the company talking about 2% growth and some very strong numbers for Kleenex and personal care products. There were some positive developments in Huggies diapers and adult care products. The company's organic growth was twice as good as Procter's. That's why the stock was up almost 2 bucks in early trading. But when I looked under the hood, I was mesmerized by the weakness that's being masked by those headline numbers. And others were, too, as the stock ultimately closed down a buck fifty or 1.5%. Makes sense. Consider how worrisome the future is for Kimberly and Clark. They need to fret about challenging and competitive pricing, a gigantic spike in commodity costs, and devastating diaper numbers in China, where they saw mid-single-digit declines in what had been their best growth market. Worse still, they're losing a lot of Chinese market share, and it might not come back. Why? CEO Tom Falk told the analysts it's been, and I quote, the local Chinese brands that have actually probably picked it up through e-commerce, end quote. Get that, a trade down when you consider their inferiority to Kimberly's products. Now, it would be one thing if these were company-specific issues unique to Kimberly-Clark. But Procter & Gamble said the same thing. Their straight-shooting CFO kicked off the conference call by telling us, and I quote, it was a challenging quarter in a very tough environment, end quote. Why is that so astonishing? Because this shouldn't be a challenging quarter, and the environment should be benign. Think about it. We have synchronized global growth. We have very good to improving employment, both in this country and around the world. This is the moment when people should be trading up to solid branded product, not going down to private label. Worse, both companies are losing share online in the emerging markets. That's the real geographic hope for the future. As Falk told us in a chilling comment, I quote, I think online is a place where you have fewer barriers to entry, and so there are more players coming into that space, end quote. In other words, it could just be beginning. 
It was so bad on the P&G call that it almost descended into abject contempt and bewilderment during the Q&A. Stephen Powers from Deutsche Bank questioned what Procter had gotten for all the money it spent on innovation, implying that it had lost share for all the effort. Lauren Lieberman from Barclays talked about how many ways the company was being hurt by disruptive uh, upstart brands like Harry's for shaving. Perhaps Dara Mosinian from Morgan Stanley said it best when she asked, do you think there's been a material change in the profit growth outlook for the categories that P&G competes in in the U.S. and globally versus what you would have expected a couple of years ago? I mean, you're pointing to some problems in baby and grooming, but you had negative pricing in every single division this quarter. That's despite a commodity spike that's not the way branded consumer packaged goods companies are supposed to operate. End quote. Ouch. And that's really the issue here. There are structural changes bringing down prices, while at the same time, raw costs are rising. To me, this is exactly what started happening to the food stocks not that long ago, and I could argue it's only just beginning in the consumer packaged goods space. Can you imagine if the commodity spikes continue? Sure, both stocks have nice dividends, but in an environment where the yield in the 10-year Treasury is rushing headlong toward 3%, those dividends are not going to protect you. Look, historically, I've liked these stocks, both for their dividends and their consistency through thick and thin. But that consistency is being undermined by the rise of online private label goods and commodity issues that I don't see going away. Normally at this point in the business cycle, these companies are doing really well, but no one cares. In fact, they'd rather own the industrials or the banks. Their stocks, these stocks are going out of style in the Wall Street fashion show on top of their bad, bad, bad prospects. So while any, anything can bounce, I can't in good conscience recommend either of these stocks. The consumer packaged goods space, like tobacco, may be facing an existential crisis here. And as far as I know, at least with these managements, there's no exit for them. Stick with Kramer. To reiterate what I said at the top of the show and what I've been saying for many months, it's the tariff issue that's the important one, global trade war. Hate him or like him, President Trump must, he feels, bend the will of the Chinese. And those tariffs are what you need to worry about, not the tenure. Everyone's worried about the tenure, which means you don't have to worry about it. Like I said, there's always a bull market summer. I promise I'll find it just for you right here on Man Money. I'm Jim Cramer, and I will see you tomorrow. CNBC's Workforce Executive Council is a premier group of C-suite human resources executives from leading companies across the country. It offers a members-only portal and chat, plus exclusive industry content, with access to breaking news calls and digital networking experiences. The network and resources HR leaders need now. Apply to the Workforce Executive Council at cnbccouncils.com slash WEC.